Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Another Brexit episode, I'm afraid, but not the usual one. We're going to go back to talk about David Cameron, his autobiography, and his decision to call the referendum. Did he have to do it? And if so, why? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So today it is just me and Helen Thompson. I think I should give a little background to the conversation we're about to have because Helen and I have had a version of it already, or rather I asked Helen a question and she gave me the answer and I thought we should share the answer with you because I learned a lot. So I've written a review for the LRB of David Cameron's memoir and in the review I talk about something that became the big puzzle for me about his account of his time in office which was not so much why did he call the referendum, although that's a question we're going to get into, but why it was an in-out referendum. Because you can have other kinds of referendums, and indeed other countries have, on EU membership, that is, in relation to treaties or other aspects of the relationship, not just the absolutely blunt in-or-out question. And the puzzle for me was that Cameron, before about 2012, was making the case that an in-out referendum was a really bad idea, because it was very risky, but also it was a really bad negotiating strategy, because what he wanted to do was reconfigure Britain's relationship with the EU, not abolish it. And yet somehow he got from that position in 2012, 2011, 2012, to a position by around 2014, 2015, where he was committed to a referendum, and either in his own mind, or not believing it, but feeling he had no choice, the only thing that referendum could be was in out. So I wrote in this, and you can read it um, on the LRB's website at lrb.co.uk, that I just don't get it, and I think it was a big mistake. But I asked Helen, after I'd written this, why did he call an in-out referendum? And about 40 minutes later, I understood. <laughs> or at least I began to understand. I still think it was a mistake, and I still think Helen and I might disagree about some of this. But there was a really important, interesting, but quite complicated chronology here. And it does turn on some really significant questions that don't get discussed enough about Britain's relationship with the EU, but other nations' relationship with the EU and their relationship with renegotiation, with treaties, with popular mandates. So we're going to take this story back way before 2012, right, Helen? We're going to, let's take it back to 2004, 2005. So Blair is Prime Minister. Chirac, whom we'll get on to later, the recently departed Jacques Chirac, is President of France. There is an attempt to persuade the peoples of Europe to endorse, in some countries in a referendum, the new constitutional treaty. And so you're going to start correcting me. I'm not going to say correct me if I'm wrong. You just got that's baked into this, right? You're going to be correcting me because I think I am wrong. But that process starts to go wrong because the constitutional treaty gets rejected in referendums crucially in France. So can you just pick up the story from there? Actually, in the case of for Britain, we need to go back before the French referendum. Oh, we do, obviously. So as it becomes clear that the, the EU states have negotiated a, this constitutional treaty, there is a question in a number of EU states, including Britain and including France, about how consent for the treaty is going to be 
cured. And just remind people, the treaty, it's, it can be perceived as a step on the road towards a more federal Europe. I think it can, but I think it's also the, the issue as much as anything that this is being called a constitutional treaty. Because if you go back to the, the treaties that preceded it... Including Maastricht. Maastricht, Nice, Amsterdam. They're all basically named after the final summit where the treaties are finalised. And as we're going to come on to, they learnt that lesson with Lisbon, but yeah. we'll come back to that. But this one was called the Constitutional Treaty. So I think any notion that it could be presented as something other than what it was was much harder than with these other treaties and it was doing things in terms of changing the ways in which decisions were made in the in the European Union which were quite constitutionally significant. And it was also it was dressed up I, mean, I remember it yeah. including by senior French politicians in quite grandiose language. I mean this was the height of the ambition to kind of let the people of Europe know that the enterprise that they were embarked on, that it was democracy, then it was this, it was that. But it was, they were really selling it. It wasn't one of their ones that they tried to sneak in by the back door. No, it wasn't. And there was quite a lot of discussion about what it, what it would mean to create a European Union and what that meant in terms of values. There was quite a discussion, as I recall at the time, about what the relationship of Christianity was to Europe's history. There were some quite complicated deep historical questions that were being put into that discussion. Around there were some Thucydides, some Pericles, wasn't there, at the beginning of it, I think? There was, yeah, I, I can't remember all that detail now, but there, were, there was certainly um, a grand ambition to it that wasn't rhetorically associated with some of the other treaties. So the question was, well, is it sufficient to ratify this treaty in the way in which previous treaties had been ratified? Now, that isn't to suggest that there hadn't been referendums on treaties before. The French, indeed, had had a referendum on the, the Maastricht Treaty, which had nearly gone horribly wrong for them because it was, or for the French government anyway, because it was very narrowly won by the government. And that had had quite some consequences for the exchange rate mechanism crisis in, in 1992. So it's not like this referendum issue appears out of, of nowhere. But the thing that had happened in Britain was is there had been very considerable reluctance going back to Maastricht to contemplate at all having a referendum on one of these treaties. So the, the basic way in which... British governments had dealt since Maastricht with treaties was to secure Britain some opt-outs and then to have Parliament ratify the treaties and not to involve the electorate. And there wasn't any opt-out that was negotiated from the EU constitutional treaty, which might in itself have been an issue why this one was a bit more difficult. But Blair was still adamant to begin with uh, for quite some time that there wasn't going to be a referendum. And just to Go back in this context, the pressure in the UK, there was this thing called the Referendum Party, James Goldsmith, a precursor of UKIP. There was a push for a referendum. I mean, it was a feature of British politics. It hadn't had nearly the impact that UKIP were to have, but it was there kind of gnawing at the edges. It was, and it was there in the in the Conservative Party as well. I mean, Mrs Thatcher, in her opposition to the Maastricht Treaty, made arguments in the House of Commons, that there should be a re- there should have been a referendum, or that there should be, because it was before it was ratified, that there should be a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty. So it's not like the referendum issue hadn't been there with Maastricht, but it had come to the fore more by 2004, early, and then going into 2005. The Liberal Democrats were particularly keen on it. And in the end, Blair agreed to make a promise that there would be a referendum. Now, This is going into the 2005 election, election yeah. all of the main parties. All of the main parties did, and the SNP actually supported that position. I checked it, it's not actually in the manifesto, but they're really quite supportive in what they say about holding a 
a referendum. And the Liberal Democrats are actually the ones who make quite a lot of the running initially on the issue. Now, at the time, I remember that there were people really taken aback by what Blair did because it was pretty difficult to see how this referendum, if it had occurred, would be anything but lost. There's one way of looking at it, which, which, which would be to say that Blair never quite thought he would have to do this because there was a reasonable prospect that the French were not going to accept it in their referendum. And the sequencing matters here because the British general election happened before the French referendum. Yes, it did. What then happened was is that the Dutch first voted the treaty down and then the French did. And that meant that the constitutional treaty stalled because with that French no it was impossible for the EU to continue with the treaty. So Blair got himself off the hook in that respect. And I just want to add one thing there because it's important to what we're going to come on to. You know, it's sometimes said that in referendums, and this happens later on with Lisbon, countries vote it down and the EU does that thing of sort of bringing it back with a few tweaks and then they say yes. But there's a big difference between one of the smaller countries voting it down and France or Britain or one of the others. I mean, there was no question of taking it back to the French people a year later and giving them another go. If one of the yeah. big countries says no, the, even even the EU recognises they've got to start again. Yeah, I mean, I, we should be said on the Danish one, if we go back to like what happened in, in 1992, is, is the Danes, when they were presented with Maastricht again, weren't presented with the same thing because by that time the Denmark had secured an opt-out for monetary union, in particular at least the most consequential opt-out was in terms of monetary union. But the French saying no was the end of the, the constitutional treaty. So it kind of got Blair off the hook? It got Blair off the hook. The problem was, though, that couldn't be the end of the issues facing the EU about its governance and constitutional arrangements, because the new East European countries, eight of them were joining, uh, they joined in, in 2004, and there had to be some changes to the way in which the institutional arrangements worked for the EU in light of there being a significantly larger EU than had previously been the case. So effectively, the EU went back to more treaty discussions. This time they weren't called a constitutional treaty, they were called the Lisbon (laughs) Treaty, but there wasn't a great deal of difference in content between what was in the constitutional treaty and what was in the Lisbon Treaty. But with the Lisbon Treaty... So let's take the UK case. Blair is replaced by Brown by the time the Lisbon Treaty has to be signed. And Brown decides that the Lisbon Treaty is not the constitutional treaty, so the manifesto commitment doesn't hold, and he can sign it as the executive authorised body in this case, and he didn't need to refer it back to the people. That's absolutely what um, happened. And there was quite a lot of fury about that decision. I mean, it was criticised all round by the other political parties, not least actually um, by the Liberal Democrats under Nick Clegg. And it is also true, and I think this really is significant, that in terms of where David Cameron ended up going as Prime Minister, is the Conservative Party under his leadership was very strongly opposed to the Lisbon Treaty. Not only not having a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, but the actual content of the Lisbon Treaty. And in Cameron's memoirs, he doesn't retreat from that position in any way in what he was saying now. So there is a kind of problem for our politics, for British politics, that then comes out of that, because basically we have ratified the Lisbon Treaty using the sizable majority that Labour still had at that point in the House of Commons with the principal opposition party that could at that time be reasonably have been expected to become the next majority 
government that didn't really happen in part because I think because of the expenses scandal but with the principal opposition party opposed to the content of the treaty and to the way in which it had been legitimated. So this then gets to the thing that I write about in my article about Cameron's book which is the puzzle for me which is there is a strategy that makes sense to me so like you say for Blair it would have been quite tricky because the constitutional treaty if he'd put it to a referendum we're guessing he would have lost it and that would be awkward for his politics. But for Cameron's politics, to offer a referendum on a treaty and to lose it is actually okay because it gives you the basis to fundamentally renegotiate. You're one of the big powers. You're like France. It's a massive spanner in the works for the EU. You have a huge bargaining chip for a negotiation, including, it seems to me, the threat of the next referendum being in out. But first of all, you have a referendum on a treaty. So say there's a referendum, say Cameron is prime minister, there's a treaty, he puts it to a referendum, the British people say no, he then goes back to the EU, and then you've got a really serious negotiation and negotiating position. Whereas somehow it came out the other way round. He attempted a negotiation, and then he put it to an in out referendum. So that's the puzzle for me. But what I think I didn't fully appreciate was just how, from the European point of view, how reluctant they were to allow anyone to put another treaty to a referendum, given the French experience. So it, it could be that Cameron's mistake was to think, when he becomes prime minister, that there's bound to be another treaty coming up. And this is what he's saying in 2011, 2012. He says, the inevitable next treaty is one we will have to put to a referendum. And I completely get that as a strategy for him. So was his mistake, we'll get to how he gets to in out, but was his mistake to assume that a treaty was coming that wasn't? Yes, I think that there's a significant truth in what you what you said there. And I should say, I'm only able to ask that question because you explained it to me beforehand. I think that to see this, we have to go back, I think, to the position that the French are in, which they've ratified the Lisbon Treaty, which is also not to have a, a referendum and to ignore the relationship between the Lisbon Treaty and the Constitutional Treaty. So... The dominant French view is, look, we do not want to be in the position where there is any further debate about having a referendum on a treaty. Therefore, we don't really want another treaty. That is the way of dealing with the problem. So the EU will have to evolve through other mechanisms. Yeah. The way that Cameron approaches the problem is to say there has to be at some point another treaty and we will make sure that a referendum is absolutely locked in when that happens. There can't be any more... Lisbon's, to use that metaphor, so to speak. So Cameron persuades Clegg, as part of the, the coalition agreement, that there's going to be an act, which is called the 2011 European Union Act, which is essentially locks in a referendum on any further treaty that, and this is quite important, that would increase the powers of the European Union. So it doesn't say that any old treaty has to be subject to a referendum. It says that any treaty that increases the powers of the European Union has to be subject to a referendum. And Parliament passes that in, uh, I think it's in March 2011. It's certainly in early 2011. Meanwhile, Cameron's thinking that he wants some of those powers that were given to the EU at Lisbon back again. Now, I think that that was somewhat delusional, but let's just leave that aside for a but, moment. But that's the renegotiation yeah. strategy all along. Renegotiation strategy. And that he then thinks that the Eurozone crisis means that the European Union will have to have another treaty to deal with the Eurozone crisis. So he thinks that 
another treaty will come and that that will be the place where British demands about powers that have moved to the EU from Westminster can be constructed. And that is a strategy that he crucially takes into the December 2011 Brussels summit where he tries and fails to veto the Fiscal Compact Treaty. Okay, so we're going to have to explain the Fiscal Compact Treaty in a second, but this then gets to, as a lot of European discussions do, the relative positions of the French and the Germans. Because So if Cameron's thinking that, then he must be thinking the French can't hold the line, which is to resist doing these things through treaties, that the French will be forced, presumably by the Germans, to agree a new treaty because the Euro crisis has created so many problems, particularly for the Germans, that they're going to have to rearrange European arrangements through a treaty. So is that the miscalculation? He thinks that the French will have to buckle and have to agree to a treaty, and they don't. I think it's, again, it's more complicated than that because the French hold the line... Uh, this is Sarkozy's president um, by this point. The French hold the line through most of 2011 that they don't want a treaty. And then it becomes clear, really in the autumn of 2011, that Merkel's view is, is that if the ECB, if the European Central Bank, is going to do more with its bond purchase programmes, then the quid quo quo is, a, is there is going to be a treaty that is going to entrench new fiscal rules for the Eurozone states. And it looks like that sometime, basically after Berlusconi's been deposed from office, that she persuades, perhaps with the help of Monty, who knows, or perhaps persuades, perhaps tells Sarkozy that this is the way it's going to be, is, is that if the ECB is going to do more, and the ECB does still need to do more at this point, we haven't got yet to... Drakis, whatever it takes moment in the summer of 2012, then the price is a treaty. Now, Sarkozy's response to that then is to think, OK, we can tolerate a treaty if it's an in, essentially a treaty between Eurozone states on an intergovernmental basis. But we don't really want to tolerate what Merkel wants, which is a, a full EU treaty. So... Cameron devises his negotiating strategy for the summit that's held in December of 2011, where they're going to try to resolve this. And that, that's a European Council summit where they're going to try and resolve this treaty issue on the basis that if it's a full EU treaty, then Britain has a veto. And if it's a Eurozone treaty, which is, seems to be Sarkozy's preference, then Britain will be able to thwart it unless the EU give Britain what it wants. Which is opt-outs from Lisbon. Well, it, it, it's, that's... It's, no, <laughs> we'll have to come back to what it's all that bit. They, they will, Britain will be able to thwart, or he will be able to thwart a Eurozone-only treaty by saying that the Eurozone states can't use the EU institutions, the European Commission and the European Court of Justice in particular, in their Eurozone treaty. And just to be clear, if it's just a Eurozone treaty, then that doesn't cause the 2011 Act to kick in demanding a UK referendum. It's only if it's a full treaty that that Act... Well, I think that this is an an interesting aspect that I hadn't really thought about, to be honest, until I was reading Cameron's memoirs, in which he's clearly worried that there are people within the Conservative Party, that the harder Eurosceptics within the Conservative Party are going to kick up a fuss about the referendum lock in relation to any treaty that comes. And he's wanting to stress still that, look, it was only supposed to, to be a referendum if there was actual transfer of powers 
from Westminster to the European Union. So he could have had a, another argument if he got what he wanted at, at the Brussels summit in, in December 2011. He could have had another argument with his party about whether the referendum lock applied or not, which would have been a whole other kind of politics. But what happens to him at that summit in December 2011 is, is he wields his veto against it being a full EU treaty. The Eurozone states fall back on, a, on an intergovernmental treaty and Cameron thinks that he has a cast iron legal position that they will not be able to have a Eurozone treaty and use the EU institutions. And that falls away. Now, in his in his memoirs, he says what happens is is that the European Council legal people had said one thing before the summer and then there's this strange, almost like, you know, oracle coming down at three o'clock in the morning saying, actually, we think it's possible to have the institutions used inside a Eurozone only treaty. But if you go back and look at the press coverage at the time, actually, I would say that there looks like, at least on the surface, a quite strong case that it's Nick Clegg who persuades him that he can't have that kind of confrontation with the Eurozone states when he gets back from the summit, because the whole issue of him wielding the veto has caused you know, profound problems within the coalition. And to go back to my original puzzlement here, which is Cameron's strategy makes sense to me if he has something really serious to threaten the Europeans with in a renegotiation, if he's going to get, you're going to have to give me the right wording for this, but if he is going to get back some of the things that he thought was lost, were lost in the Lisbon Treaty, you don't do that unless you really, really have something to threaten them with. So why didn't he want a full treaty that he could then have a referendum on that he would, well, maybe not lose, because it depends which way the government goes, but that the British people reject? So what I say in my article is the sequence that only makes sense for me, if Britain's ever going to leave the European Union in a way, the way we've done it is wrong because Cameron tried to renegotiate later on, and we'll come on to that, got very little and came back and held an in-out referendum. And now we're trying to negotiate something. Whereas Britain rejecting a treaty, going back to the Europeans and saying, either you give us what we want or we're actually going to have to move to an in-out referendum. Then you have the basis, it seems to me, for a really substantive renegotiation of Britain's relationship with the EU. So why didn't he want a treaty in 2011 that he could put to a referendum? Because that was the language he was talking back then. And that language seems to just move straight into in-out as though these were the same thing. I think that partly, though, is because something else intervenes in all this from his starting place. And that is the consequences of the Eurozone crisis for the city. So... If we go into 2010, when he becomes Prime Minister, we do have the Eurozone crisis. And indeed, there is an issue that's going to cause him quite some difficulty that actually takes place during the time when the coalition discussions were going on. And actually that Alistair Darling was still Chancellor. And that is, is whether Britain's going to be involved in the, the first of the Greek bailouts. And this issue about whether the non-Eurozone members have got responsibilities for these bailouts is something that vexes him all the way through to the actual renegotiation that takes place. But I think that in some sense a really more significant development is what happens in 2011, which is is that it becomes clear that the ECB is going to push something that's called a locational policy, which is basically going to make it more difficult for London's clearing houses to be the centre of Euro trading. And that 
Cameron begins to see, I think, at some point in 2011, and I would suspect after the referendum lock has been passed, that there's a whole new problem, which is that it may be possible for other member states in the European Union and the European Central Bank to divide the single market between Eurozone members and non-Eurozone members. And that Britain, having the offshore financial centre of the Eurozone, is in, is in some particular difficulty where this is concerned. So if you go back, you know, like the way that British governments have dealt with financial services, going back to the Single European Act and the finalisation, the plan to complete the single market by 1992. The British position has been, indeed it was was articulated by Mrs Thatcher, that it was safe, indeed desirable, for there to be qualified majority voting on single market issues that Britain would benefit from that. I think, to begin with, it dawns on them in 2011, that they see that there is a risk to qualified majority voting on financial services. And there are some rules that have been generated by Lisbon that are going to come into effect by 2014 that are going to mean that the non-Eurozone states can quite probably be outvoted. So the thing that then Cameron decides to concentrate on in what he wants in the December 2011 summit is providing some protection for that, to try to provide some means now of stopping Britain being outvoted on financial services matters. And that's effectively what he is. I mean, he's asking for a couple of other things too, but that is the thing that he's concentrating on asking for in December in 2011, because he thinks that that has become the most important thing that needs protecting. So in that sense, he's trying to deal with two different problems in his mind, I think, at the same time. The one is the domestic politics of consent to treaties and trying to do something about these unfulfilled referendum promises and the second is is what are we going to do if we're at risk of being in a permanent minority on financial services matters talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books so as i understand it there are a range of negotiating strategies that he could adopt he makes some choices because of contingent circumstances to go one way rather than another but if you trace this story through to 2016 He's increasingly boxing himself in. And in 2011, 2012, he's still not thinking about an in-out referendum. And an in-out referendum, we know, is way riskier than these strategies that he was adopting back then. Because it could destroy him, his career, his party. (laughs) The stakes are incredibly high in an in-out referendum. And there's no suggestion back then that that's what he's thinking. In the memoir, he says, among other things... He hates that people say this was all about party management because he says even some of the hardline Eurosceptics in my party weren't calling for an in-out referendum. They were calling for a mandate referendum, a, a referendum that allowed us to renegotiate or to reconfigure our relationship with the EU by effectively getting the British people to say no, enough, stop. How does he get from there to this decision? Obviously, he thought he was going to win it, but where the stakes were so much higher. And the thing that I still don't understand is it doesn't make sense as a negotiating strategy. And he sounds, as you've described, like someone who was a sophisticated, I mean, maybe he made mistakes, but a sophisticated negotiator. So in-out is a terrible negotiating strategy. I think there's two things that I'd say here. First of them is, is that in his memoirs, he says that the first time he really gave some thought to it is actually January 2012, when he's got these tape recordings that I think he did with Daniel Finkelstein. Finkelstein, where he says it's on the tape in January 2012. And that, to be honest, that does make sense to me, because I think that you, 
we just can't underestimate what a turning point this December 2011 summit is because although that he gets um you know a domestic political boost from it as i recall i think that the first poll out after the, that supposed veto which wasn't a veto the conservatives had a, a 6% lead and this is a year in which they've not been generally doing well in the polls the fact is it's a, it's a negotiating disaster because he's gone in thinking that he can basically ask and get what he wants that the civil service seemed to have encouraged him in that view or at least in the way in which he tells it on the legal side of things and it turns out that actually the eurozone states will go ahead and have a a treaty that actually some non-eurozone states are also going to join in fact all of them except britain and the czech republic were going to join and they are going to be able to use the eu institutions now i do think there is a really interesting question as to why he didn't make a fight about that and i do suspect at least that nick clegg is part of the story as to why he didn't make a fight but Given that he didn't, then the threats that he thought were in place have gone by January 2012. So at that point, his first strategy for dealing with the whole problem is, is bankrupt. So he has to start again. So it's not surprising then that he gives some thought to saying, OK, maybe that we have to face up to the whole existential question of whether we should be in the European Union at all. And I think one thing that comes to come out in his memoirs is that is a question for him. I mean, he says, I think it's, in, it's either in the summer of 2014 or 2015, it says it occurs to him that maybe he could support leaving the European Union. So I could get it could be an existential question for him. And I also understand that he's slightly boxed himself in and that he's gone a long way down a road where some kind of referendum is inevitable. He's made lots of commitments. And yet there's nothing left to hold a referendum on except membership, because the the things that might come from the EU don't applied to the UK. So he's trapped in some ways. But I still don't understand then how he thinks it's going to work if we bring it closer to the present, that he's going to renegotiate something, something significantly different that he can then put to the British people in a to change the terms of an in-out referendum rather than what happened, which is he had a kind of renegotiation that basically was barely considered in the referendum. It was sort of blown away by other issues. When did he get in the mindset or did he ever persuade himself that that strategy could work? And after all, he got strong advice from people, including George Osborne, that it would never work. Well, I think there's an interim step that we need to go to, which is January 2013, which is when he makes the Bloomberg speech, where he first says that a future Conservative government will hold an in-out referendum. He is still at that point talking about using a treaty, he thinks, or he says he thinks anyway, that the Eurozone states will need in order to conduct those negotiations. So he's, he's still, in that sense, even though the strategy's already failed, he's still trying to hold on to the idea that the treaty can be the basis for giving the leverage that Britain needs. And in this case, not saying we might hold a referendum on this treaty, just saying we might veto it. Yeah, effectively. Now, I think that there's a whole set of, of complications in the way in which others are going to react to that, given that the referendum lock is in place. And that means that the, if it's a substantial, substantial treaty, there's significant risk. But there's, there's really no reason, I think, to think that the, the EU is going down that road at that point. There's no evidence that the French have changed their minds about the difficulties of having a full EU treaty. It's not, I think, really until you get to Macron's Sorbonne speech in 2017, where he starts to say effectively that the French should stop thinking that new treaties and 
a taboo because of the referendum issue. In, but that's in, a bit late. In fact, that's, a bit, that's a bit late. For, that's that's a bit late for for Cameron. So, at some point, then after the Bloomberg speech, he has to realise that the negotiations will be just between Britain and the EU twenty seven on a one off basis. It doesn't involve any stakes for the rest of the EU other than Britain's membership of the the European Union. That I think is a is a really is a really You're trying to avoid the word mistake. Yeah. It's really I was gonna say it's it, Go on, say it's, it. It's it's a structural weakness that you can't get around. And the, that's, the, the, that's the, your word for mistake. That, the, the, but the, the reason why I'm hesitant about mistake is, is because I think that if you read his memoirs, what comes out really strongly is, is that he did not think that Britain could stay in the EU on the basis in which it was by 2015. That he does think, or he did think, and I think he still does think, that the membership had to be reformed. And I think he thinks it because of this issue, first and foremost, about you know, like financial services. Is he, he ends up with all the with the freedom of movement issue, which is onto the political radar by that point in 2013, 14, that isn't there when he's worrying about things in in 2011. I mean, I think it's a mis- I, I will use the word mistake. I think it's a mistake because I think that there was no way of reconfiguring Britain's membership of the European Union, and either was it is the way it is and just have to muddle through, or we have to leave. So that's why In Out is a nightmare for him. And as many people have said about this book, he doesn't make a case in the book for In. And then at the end of it, he calls an In Out referendum, and he has to be all in for In. And it kills him. I mean, it destroys his career and, and much else. And he has to end up making the case not on the basis of the renegotiation, but on the basis of you know, economic arguments about what might happen, and basically saying what's wrong with Leave, not what's right about In. So he is trapped by this point because he doesn't get enough in his renegotiation. If he really does have those doubts, an in-out referendum is going to be terrible for him. It is. I mean, I think that he thinks, I still think he thinks he's trying to make some defence of what he achieved in the negotiations. He says something about, look, we've made clear that the welfare state is national. I think that was quite a striking phrase that he uses about that. He makes some play about saying, look, we're not going to have any responsibility for these future bailouts. I mean, I think that's a push because... he basically has to have an agreement that says somewhere down the road, when we finally get round to having a treaty, we will write this into EU law. Well, he's already been in that position since about 2010, 2011, so he's not really much further. I think in some sense, the, the most interesting thing he gets actually out of the renegotiation is this agreement that, that Britain sort of effectively has an opt-out of ever closer union. But if you have an opt-out of ever closer union and, and you have a European union that is rather premised on that, and indeed a European Court of Justice that works from that premise in its judgments. And it's not clear how actually you can stay in the in the European Union. So that's a rather strange concession that he thinks of, is something that is worth trumpeting. But I think that the, the mistake that ensues from having to conduct the negotiations in the way in which he did and getting relatively so little out of it is is that he just gives a perfect demonstration of British weakness, British political weakness in the European Union. So the actual act of renegotiation and the outcome that ensues is actually fuel for the Leave campaign because it says, look, here is a problem of Britain's membership of the European Union in microcosm. I think we slightly disagree about, I mean, I see that he's sort of trapped, but I also think that when you read it back and read some of the things that he said as a strategy, he maybe should have been clearer early on that this was going to hit the rocks. 
But when you read it, what did you think he got fundamentally wrong? I mean, where are your frustrations with him? Because this is structural weakness, so give me personal culpability. I think that I think that the thing for which he is personally culpable for, you know, in in some sense, really profoundly, is the fact that he knew. It's clear, I think, reading these memoirs, and it was before he knew there was a real possibility that Leave would win. And indeed, in some sense, he knew it because he half believed it necessary himself. I mean, there's a, a lever struggling to get out of David Cameron in those um, memoirs. And just to say, and I write about this, that this is one of the big differences with the Scottish referendum. And that if he had run those two things together in his mind, that was a mistake. Because with the Scottish referendum, he had no doubts. Yeah. He's for the union. And for that reason, among others, he could make the concessions that were needed to be made to save the union. With the EU, there was none, none of that well, conviction. Can't make any, I, mean, I think I disagree with that. He can't make any concessions on the EU because they're not his to give. The only person who can make concessions is the rest of the EU, in particular Merkel. So what I mean by that is concessions to the arguments of the other side in domestic politics. So in the Scottish referendum case, the, the famous pledge, mm. whatever you think about its long-term consequences, it was a signal that he, he heard the arguments of the other side. And I think he was able to do that because he so passionately wanted his side to win. And there is discussion in the memoirs, again, I write about it, that they talk about close to the vote, if there's a risk they think they might be losing. Should they say something about immigration? Should they at least acknowledge some of what's driving the other side's arguments? And Linton Crosby, among other people, according to Cameron, advise against that. But in hindsight, that doesn't look like the right call. No, I mean, I I do think that the difference with the Scottish referendum does matter because saying we hear you and then being able to do absolutely nothing about it I'm not sure that that really works as a political tactic. It just kind of, in some sense, reinforces Leave's argument that it doesn't make any difference, like what any British politician says about this. Although if you do it's it in the last week, you might get away with it. It's settled by EU law. I think, though, if he understood as well as he did the the weakness of Britain's membership, then he absolutely had to make contingency arrangements of some kind for leave winning the, the referendum. Now, he says, look, it would have taken up time, it was better spent on other things, that he didn't intend to stay on, so he didn't see that any government that would replace him or any prime minister that would replace him would accept those contingency. Although he now says, and this seems to me the weakest part of his defence, that he thought he would stay on for three months mm-hmm. and that in those three months he would have done a lot of this kind of yeah. planning, but it was taken away from him because Andrea Ledson made an yeah. inopportune <laughs> remark about yeah. Theresa May's... <laughs> personal circumstances but in those three months what could he have done not much I think and this goes I think to an issue that he doesn't want to face and that is that at the very moment in which the referendum happened and leave won we were in a constitutional crisis because the majority of the voting electorate had said they did not consent to a pretty significant part of the constitutional arrangements by which this country is governed so For that to be the case, and then for the Prime Minister to decide that morning, even though he's the person whose decision-making has brought us to that moment, that the thing that he's going to do is is walk away. I I, I think that that is is pretty hard to to get one's head around and to to justify, because as we've said about several times before, the issue of prudence and acting prudently is a fundamental part of the only way in which... British Constitution can work, and and that is an act of, you know, of huge risk taking. I think. But you also think it's not just the walking away; it's the lack of 
consideration of the possibility of this outcome beforehand what in the months leading up in the in the years leading up if back if back in 2013 he thought whether willfully or not that he was heading down that road he might be trapped on that road or he might want to go down that road but towards in out you have to think about what in out vote means you do and he didn't well i mean or he didn't encourage we're not sitting others either to do so we're uh, I, th- I think that the way that he tells the story, at least, and I'm being hesitant because we don't know all the things that went on inside his head, but in the way in which he... Tells well, we don't know anything that went <laughs> no. on inside his head. Um, in the way in which he tells the story, I think that he doesn't get to grips with the constitutional question, that he's preoccupied when he thinks about the EU question with the single market questions. Though I think that you might say that, and it's an interesting in some ways he doesn't spend more time discussing this, if you look back at some of the things that he said early on in that parliament, he clearly thought that the case for Britain's membership of the European Union rested as much on the foreign policy cooperation side as it did on the single market side. Though he spends a lot more time talking about the single market stuff in the book. So your, your case would be somehow in his own mind, and it relates to some of the things you talked about through the Eurozone crisis and beyond, what you consider fundamentally to be a constitutional issue for him turns into something more to do with either security or financial arrangements and the constitutional questions for him are less prominent than they should have been? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, que- the whole thing about the EU membership for Britain is is that it's all these things at the same time. But it does include fundamental constitutional yeah. questions. It's not that these other things that he's worrying about are not important. Of course, they're extremely important but, but we're not in a security crisis. No. We're not in a financial yeah. crisis yet. We're in a constitutional crisis. Exactly. So I hope that's all now clearer. So Jacques Chirac, who, who died this week, someone that probably people in Britain haven't thought about for a while. Uh, people in France clearly have been thinking about him. And, and I think in France, maybe less so, but to some extent in Britain, to a greater extent, there was surprise at the outpouring of not just grief, but affection, you might almost say in some cases, love for this man who symbolised something about French politics and French history that wasn't clear at the time because he wasn't that popular as a president, but something's happened since. There are two interesting questions, I think, about Chirac, the second of which is why he is now so loved. But the first is, what part did he play in the story that you just told? Because he, after all, his career more or less exactly overlapped with Blair's, not exactly, but very nearly, and the Iraq war then becomes the great dividing line. But where is Chirac in 2004, 2005 on these questions? Well, you know, Chirac's position on European Union is, you know, was complicated in that... I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> is, is that it is... It probably was. If you go back to the 80s, it's under his premiership when he's prime minister under, under Mitterrand that, that France starts pushing the monetary union agenda. It's his finance minister, I think it was Edward Balladur, who first takes a, a monetary union proposal to a... Uh, Council of Finance Ministers in January 1988. And if you say what's going on there, it's about deep French dissatisfaction with what was then German monetary leadership of the European community as it then was. So Chirac was someone who was very aware and sensitive to the Franco-German axis, as indeed every French Prime Minister and, 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 and President was, but he was quite confrontational about it in that respect. It's also then interesting if you skip on to 2002, 2003, going to the Iraq war decision-making, that has real consequences, I think, for what Blair thinks that he's doing in terms of relations with France and 
Germany is is that Chirac, to begin with, is pretty hesitant about opposing the Iraq war in the build-up to that in 2002. He's sitting on the fence through that summer in 2002. And then he moves closer to the German position, to um, Gerhard Schroeder's position. And really, I think that the kind of deal is done on EU matters between Chirac and Schroeder that takes Chirac closer to Schroeder. So... If you look sort of later, what's to come, like say like Libya, for instance, is, is that the French and the British and the Americans are together about Libya and Germany takes a, a different position. In that case, under, under Chirac, then the French side with the Germans. And that really leaves Blair in the lurch. I mean, it really scuppers his entire way of thinking about the Britain's interest in the EU because his way of dealing with the predicaments that EU membership caused for Britain is to try and say, we'll replace the Franco-German axis with a Franco-German-British axis. And Chirac siding with Schroeder rather than with Blair over Iraq completely really ends that. So that one was a security crisis. So that's where it's not constitution, it's not financial. Though, as you say, they're all mixed up together. I was reading an article in The Guardian yesterday, which is trying to explain to British readers why Chirac is now so revered, given that he wasn't that much loved at the time. And halfway through it, I found myself thinking, this is kind of like Johnny Alliday, the famous French rock star, who no one outside France could ever understand what on earth the French saw in him. And that article then finished by saying, Chirac was like Johnny Alliday. But the difference in the Iraq war cases is that Chirac did have one hit outside of France. Because I remember in 2003 being really impressed when he finally takes his stand both by what looked from a British perspective by the courage of it, but also by the Frenchness of it. I mean, just like once he decided, he was contemptuous of Blair and he was contemptuous of the Anglo-American position. And it was magnificently French. And it did cross over because the Iraq war was such an issue for us. And so I can see, and I think that does have something to do with the affection in which his memory is held in France, that that was a really important moment, 2003. It was a kind of moment of French assertion, not what we think of as French assertion, which is actually the French are often quite happy to take part in wars, but the French assertion against the Anglo-American alliance. And it does still resonate. I mean, I think people in this country have forgotten it, but it was really raw at the time. There was that moment where he pulled Blair aside yeah. and he gave him a telling off. And I do remember thinking, wow, you have to be French to do that. Yeah, that, I had quite forgotten that until you just mentioned it. But yeah, there was definitely something pretty raw about the way in which Chirac treated Blair during those um, months. I think the other thing that, that may well be part of Chirac's retrospective attraction, though, is the 2002 presidential election, which was also obviously a pretty big deal at the time because it was a precursor of politics. Of the so, last so that's few where years. he saw off... Um, Marine Le Pen's father. Yeah, and that lots of people who had hated him basically voted for him and had to vote for him in the in the second round. And I think, as I recall, took a certain kind of French pride in saying, look, we can do this, we can make this compromise even with someone like Chirac because the future of the Republic is at stake. And in some of the reminiscences now, people talking about their parents who'd, who'd grown to think of Chirac as the enemy and sort of nicknamed him a kind of fascist. And then he, then he faced a real fascist and they realised, no. They could swallow whatever they thought and defend, as you say, the Republic. And I think as well, there were certain things. So, you know, when he's standing up against the, the Anglo-American alliance over Iraq, there's something, it's very Gaulish, it's very Charles de Gaulle. He also did do more than 
I think I'm right in saying, any other French president to try and deal with the question about what Vichy had done. You know, Mitterrand in particular had been very keen on just basically saying, look, that wasn't the Republic, that's not France. France doesn't have to apologise for anything that happened to Jews under Vichy, and Chirac took a different position on that. If you go to lrb.co.uk, you can find what I have to say about Cameron, and then you can flesh it out with all the things that Helen has added to that. Look forward to seeing people at Politics Live this weekend. Next week, we think we're going to be talking about Donald Trump and his looming impeachment. The you never know in politics these days, something else might have happened before then. And if you're listening in Rangoon, hello from all of us. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Could you just do a little hello breakfast bake-off? Can I do my can I can I do my anagrams? Because I've built them up. They're not even the second one is good. The first one is a bit. So the let's get Brexit done is an anagram for blonde IT sex getter. But this one is better. Get Brexit done. Beg, extend, riot. That is, that is a yeah. great anagram, isn't it? I mean, that literally is a description of the world we're about to enter.